Well, we've all had our moments and our seasons when life doesn't make sense, and maybe for you, God doesn't make sense. We hear about, especially in the book of James, how we should deal with, you know, troubling times. We're to count it all joy when we face various trials. James has told us many things not to do in this book. He's told us to not be angry. He's told us to, uh, in verse 12, we just saw not to make oaths. We've seen many things about how to treat people and how to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How to deal with our tongue, which can be so powerful but yet so destructive. And so many, many lessons in the book of James that we've, I think, all appreciated. And now we're going to move into a section that deals with troubled times. There's one aspect in here, if you're happy, something to do, but several topics that are uh, dealt with in the verses. Let me just give you a quick outline. There is a divine prescription for suffering, or if you're in trouble, verse 13, if you're a note taker. There's a divine prescription for if you're cheerful or happy, also in verse 13. There's a divine prescription for if you're sick, in verse 14. And if you're dealing with sin or ongoing uh, sins that have been easily besetting you in verses 15 and 16. So a good way to navigate the text is to think about some S words. Uh, We are told how to navigate times when we're uh, suffering, smiling, sick, or sinning. Let me say that one more time. We're given a remedy here, a divine prescription of times when we're suffering, smiling, sick, or sinning. Now, we do need to acknowledge that the major theme of these verses is prayer. I think in every verse, prayer is mentioned. So the big picture of the text is certainly prayer. Prayer being the appropriate response. There's uh, the prayer of an individual in verse 13. There's the prayer of the elders in verse 14. There's the prayer of the congregation in verse 15 of really any spiritual believer in verse uh, 15 as well. And then there's even the prayer of Elijah in verses 17 and 18. And so we're going to move through a passage that has been often controversial, perhaps even misinterpreted, but we're going to ask for God's help. And the main theme is, what do we do when we need help in troubled times? Where do we turn? What's the prescription from heaven? A few psalms to get us going. Psalm 61, 1 and 2 says, Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to thee. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. James is going to say that the remedy is always looking to God in every season or circumstance of life. Whether you're happy, whether you're sad, whether you're sick, whether you're smiling, whatever it may be, whether you're in trouble. A God-centered perspective and trust in God in every season is what the Bible calls us to. Psalm 121 says these words, verses 1 and 2. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then Jeremiah 33, 2 and 3 says, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. We can't assume for a moment that in troubled times our first uh, action is prayer. 
Sometimes our first action may be complaining. Sometimes our first action may be, Lord, if you get me out of this one, here's what I'll do. We might be making an oath to heaven. And in verses 9 and 12, we do have those two things mentioned. Take a peek. It says, Do not complain, James 5, 9, brethren, against one another. Troubled times often bring complaints that you yourselves may not be judged. And then in verse 12, it says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. In both verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. End of verse 9 and verse 12, talk about judgment. Jesus is the ultimate judge. Christians are going to appear before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. And how we handle difficult times is really important. How we lead our families. Do we pray? Is gathering for prayer one of the first things that you and I could say we do when trouble strikes, financial or otherwise? Health issues. While kayaking in southern England uh, off the Isle of uh, Wight, Mark Ashton Smith, a 33-year-old lecturer at Cambridge University, capsized in treacherous waters. Clinging to his craft and reaching for his cell phone, Ashton Smith's first inclination was to call his father. It didn't matter to the desperate son that his dad, Alan Pym Smith, was at work training British troops in Dubai, 3,500 miles away. Without delay, the father relayed his son's mayday to the Coast Guard installation nearest to his son's location. Ironically, it was less than a mile away. Within 12 minutes, a helicopter retrieved the grateful Ashton Smith. Like this kayaker, says this writer, when we are in peril, our first impulse should be to call our father, the one we trust to help us. And so, one thing that you'll notice as you uh, navigate through this passage is that James assumes a couple of basics, but let me put them out. First of all, there's a God who loves you. Second of all, it's expected that you would be in community with other Christians. The idea of a solo Christian just doesn't work. Now, you may be a shut-in listening to my voice right now, and that does exist, right? There are people who can't just physically make it to church anymore, but that's the exception rather than the rule. James is assuming, really, you could argue that the big picture is an assembly of Christians that have gathered and they walk through the door in all kinds of various situations. Some, this morning, walked through the door smiling. Some of you were happy. Some of you were cheerful. Some of you walked through the door and you have been suffering, not just this week, but for quite some time. You have agonizing questions. You have ongoing health challenges. You've been praying and you have questions and you're wondering, am I all alone? How do I make sense of times like this? Whenever we open these doors, we realize that there's a various <laughs> scale of different uh, weeks that have gone on for all of us, right? Some of you have just lost a loved one. Some of you uh, have a loved one who's terribly sick. Some of you just got a promotion at work. Some of you are coming off, you know, a season of great difficulty or may you, maybe you find yourself right in the middle of it. So what do you do now? Well, this is a call to prayer. This is the divine prescription for these kinds of times. Notice in verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? I'm sure we're going to hit every possibility this morning. Let's start with the first one in verse 13. Is anyone among you? This includes all of us. Is anyone suffering? King James, is anyone afflicted? NIV, 
Are any of you in trouble? Let him pray. So maybe you came into this building or maybe this week your simple prayer was, Lord, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Help. Well, the Greek word for trouble is a word that is generally used to be afflicted. It speaks of a person in distress. It's a general term that denotes the experience of all sorts of afflictions and trials. Suffering is a Greek word that Paul uses, for example, in 2 Timothy 2.9 when he says, For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. James is addressing those who are suffering. Uh, it, could be, it could include physical distress, but it's probably persecution, being abused and treated wickedly. We know that earlier in chapter 5, that's what we've seen. We've seen these uh, day laborers who have worked hard, and some of the rich landowners are holding back their pay, and they've been crying out to God because if they don't get paid, they don't eat, and they can't feed their families. And so James has called upon the church in times like these to pray. If you're in trouble, if you find yourself in hardship, then pray. The person that is in distress should call upon the Lord. There's a present tense uh, mood here for the verb translated, he must pray, suggesting a continual praying. Let him keep praying. Now, James isn't just preaching to us. James actually lived this. Many of you remember, as we introduced the book of James, that James was known historically as old camel knees because he was constantly in the temple praying for the people of God and praying for the nation of Israel. He is not saying something to us that he himself did not practice. And remember that the time in which James lived was very difficult to be a Christian. It was very difficult to be identified as Jesus' half-brother. Very difficult to lead the Jerusalem church. He was a man of prayer. He's not just, you know, blowing smoke or giving us words. Just, just pray and it'll be okay. He's saying, no, pray. You see, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says we're to pray without ceasing. Have you ever tried that before? Have you ever tried to pray without ceasing? Oh man, it's very difficult. But the word there that Paul uses is the idea of a Godward gaze. Here's the main point. When you pray, it takes your eyes off of the situation and puts your eyes where? On God. That's what prayer does. God does not need to be informed about the circumstances that surround your life at any given moment. He does know all things. But he does know this, that when you pray, your eyes move off of difficulty onto God, who's big enough to handle all of those cares. In fact, he says in 1 Peter, cast all your care to me because I care for you. Do you have any friends that are offering that right now? Give me all your burdens. I'll carry them for you, brother, sister. But God cares about you that much. He does want you to turn your gaze off the problems onto him. And of course, it is a challenge for all of us to redirect what we could talk about in terms of complaining or wondering why me and just begin to pray. But that is the divine formula. It's to pray. Deuteronomy 33, 26 says, There is none like the God of Jeshurun or Israel who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is our dwelling place and underneath us 
are his everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33, 26, and 27. So the prayer believers are to offer in such circumstances is not necessarily a prayer for deliverance, but a prayer for strength. Oftentimes when we pray and we're in a troublesome situation, we say, Lord, get me out of this. I'm right with you. Lord, I want to be healed right now. Lord, this difficult person. Lord, this difficult situation. But oftentimes when people prayed and stood firm, the Lord entered into their situation, whether it was a fiery furnace or a lion's den or difficulty dealing with temptation or whatever it may be. The Lord doesn't necessarily remove our problems the moment we pray. I'm sure you've noticed. But he promises to enter into that situation and be our strength so that we can persevere and make it through. Prayer becomes the channel by which you call upon God's resources and stop trying to just use your own. And many times what we do is use prayer as the last resort. I've tried plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I guess now... We'll pray. Well, that should not be our attitude, but oftentimes it is. Or sometimes we feel like, Lord, I don't want to bother you with this thing again, right? We feel like we've been beating the doors of heaven so many times over the same thing. But the idea is that we ought all to, always to pray and not to lose heart. You can reference Luke 18.1. Because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And so if you're under trouble, if you're in pressure, Pray. In his book, Legacy of the Sovereign of Sovereign Joy, John Piper writes, At the age of 16 in the year 371, Augustine sneaked away from his mother in Carthage. During the night, he sailed away to Rome, leaving her alone in her ter- tears and prayers. How were these prayers answered? Not the way Monica, Augustine's mother, hoped at the time. Only later could she see that praying is the deepest path to joy. Augustine himself wrote these words. And what did she beg of you, my God, with all those tears, if not that you would prevent me from sailing? But you did not do as she asked you. Instead, in the depth of your wisdom, you granted the wish that was closest to her heart. For she saw that you had granted her far more than she used to ask in her tearful prayers. You converted me to yourself, so that I no longer placed any hope in this world, but stood firmly upon the rule of faith as you turned her sadness into rejoicing, into joy far fuller than her dearest wish, far sweeter and more chaste than any she had hoped to find. Sometimes we pray and what we're asking for is something smaller than maybe what God wants to do, but at least we're putting it before him and asking for his his help. So is anyone suffering? Look at uh, verse 13, which is now part B. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. So now we're told if we're having a good week and things are going well, the right response may not be specifically prayer for help, but it may be praise to God and praise specifically in song. In fact, the Greek word here is salo, where we get the idea of a psalm. The word is used in the Septuagint, the Hebrew or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament to reference a music with a harp to sing songs of praise. Praise and prayer, of course, are closely related. Praise is actually a form of prayer, and both are essential for spiritual strength and for those undergoing persecution. 
Remember when Paul was in prison, he began to sing songs at midnight with his missionary partner, and everybody heard it. But the right response to joyful times is still to include God in them and not just say, well, everything is cool, so I don't need to pray. But the right response is praise. And I'm hoping that many of you are not just listening and joining into praise just on Sunday mornings. I hope when we pray, oh, 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 is on your car during the week. And maybe you're letting some of the oh, 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 go out, go out the car window. That's all right. People don't think you're talking to yourself anymore because they know you have those speakers on the phone. So you can sing in your car. You can, you can talk to God. Nobody will think you're crazy anymore. It, it's wonderful. So you can just sing it out. It used to be that if you're doing that, people would go, what in the world? But now it's cool. You can sing in your car. You can pray in your car. You can blast praise music. Everybody else is blasting their music. Why not? You can send a message out your car door window. Are you happy? Then praise God. Sometimes I've noticed that even when I'm not so happy, maybe there's not an automatic smile on my face. I come into this place on a Sunday morning, praises begin to go up, and all of a sudden my mood, my heart, my attitude changes. Amen? Praise redirects me because it takes my eyes off of me because when I wake up in the morning, you know, it's not always pretty. Anybody else? I mean, even after I have coffee, it's not always pretty. And so I need oftentimes a change of attitude, a heart change. And I come in and the praises of God begin to go up and my heart changes. One writer says, my sister bought a new car that was loaded with high-tech options. The first time she drove the car in the rain, she turned a knob she thought would start the windshield wipers. Instead, a message flashed across the dash, drive car 360 degrees. She had no idea what that meant. So she went home and got uh, the manual out, which I always do as a last-ditch effort. But anyway, she learned that while trying to turn on the windshield wipers, she had inadvertently turned off the internal compass, and the car had lost its sense of direction. To correct the problem, the car had to be driven in a full circle, pointed north, Then the compass had to be reset. Each time we gather to worship, says this writer, we are resetting our internal compass. We establish true north in our soul, remembering who God is and what his truth proclaims. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and he heard my cry, but I need to cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon Uh, a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. And sometimes that's what I just need to do. I just need to sing a new song. I just need to allow God's word and praise to him to redirect the compass of my life. So if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, praise. Don't make false promises. Don't make oaths. Don't complain. But seek the Lord, the one who is higher than you. Next one is verse 14. Is any among, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them, the elders, pray over him. The word over is epi, would seem to be above. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
Now, if you're sick, there is a prescription, and the prescription, notice in the verse, is really upon the sick person to call for the elders of the church. This establishes a few things that need to be mentioned. Number one, that churches established in the early first century had a plurality of elders leading the congregation. So in every church, elders were put in charge, if you will. And the idea of the word elder can, can mean older in age, but the primary meaning is one who is spiritually mature. And so each congregation has elders, a plurality of elders, overseeing it and being under shepherds of the chief shepherd and ministering to the flock of God. And if someone is sick, they are to call for these elders, these leaders of the church who are defined in several places in the New Testament as men who have one wife. There's no question about their spiritual maturity or their commitment to the faith. You could look at 1 Timothy 3.1, for example, and following. And so, if anyone is sick among you, notice verse 14, that person is to call for the elders. It would seem that in calling for the elders, maybe the person is at home, bedridden, and in a serious situation in terms of illness, and so they must make the call, either through a loved one or a friend, or in our times, a telephone or an email or a text message, to call and say, hey, I'm sick. This establishes something that I think is important, especially in churches that are a little bit larger, and it's hard to track where everybody is. Sometimes we find out somebody's sick through a prayer request. Sometimes we hear in the church office. Sometimes somebody on staff knows somebody's sick, but we don't always know when you're sick. And so the only way we can really know is if you tell us and ask us to come and pray for you. And sometimes what happens in churches is that Communication breaks down and a person's gone two or three weeks and maybe someone missed it. Maybe we didn't notice. You know, we are human. And so we need to put the ball into your court to ask us to pray for you. And that is the biblical formula. Ask for prayer. And some of you don't want to ask. Sometimes when we're really, really sick, we don't want to broadcast it because it could be a number of reasons. Maybe we don't want to burden people or maybe, just maybe, it could be our pride. We don't want to say we're vulnerable. And look, I don't like being vulnerable as much as you don't like being vulnerable, but unless you call for the elders of the church, if they don't hear through the grapevine of the networks that we have, they're not going to know you're sick. They may not even realize you're missing. And so it's incumbent upon the church to call for the elders. And if you call to us, we will come. We will figure out a way to get to you. And we will figure out a way to pray. In fact, it's our happy privilege to pray for you. To come alongside you and to say, let's call to the Lord together. Many, many times over the last 20 years in this position, I have cried out to the Lord on behalf of many, many people. Some of my own family members, but many, many times in hospital rooms, in homes where someone, you know, their own mortality was waning. And we cried to the Lord. And we all have to admit as we look at a difficult passage like this that when we've cried to the Lord, it hasn't been an automatic healing. You know, there's been many, many times when we've anointed people with oil and we've prayed over them and that person has not been made well. And they have not been raised up. And so we're going to ask some questions about James' statement here, acknowledging that there is no parallel passage to this in the whole New Testament. 
So if there was somewhere else I could take you and say, okay, here's another place that we can compare this teaching, I would, but it doesn't exist. There's a place in Mark 6 that tells about the apostles going around with oil and healing people in the gospel ministry that Jesus commended them to, but that's the only thing we have outside of that. And so we're going to break down some words. First of all, in verse 14, and I'm going to move a little bit more slow than maybe in past weeks because it's a little bit more technical and it deserves uh, us to break this down. See the word sick there, sick there. Is anyone, verse 14, among you sick? The Greek word is astheneo. It is spelled A-S-T-H-E-N-E-O. Astheneo. It means generally to be weak, to be feeble, to be without strength, or to be powerless. The word is translated sick 18 times in the New Testament. It is used 14 times in the New Testament to refer to emotional or spiritual weakness. And there have been some that have approached a very difficult text and said, since the main thrust of the book of James has been trouble and persecution, he's just simply continuing with that theme. And this is not bodily illness that he's dealing with, but he's dealing more with someone who's emotionally drained or someone who is so persecuted and so beat up that they have nothing else, no more strength, nothing more to give. They're hanging on by a thread, if you will. Douglas Moo, in a great commentary on the book of James, argues, though, that when astheneo is used in the sense of spiritual weakness, it is made clear by a qualifier. The person, for example, was weak in faith or weak in conscience. You can reference Romans 14.2 and 1 Corinthians 8.7, respectively. Secondly, he argues that James' most relevant material comes from the Gospels, <coughs> excuse me, where astheneo almost always refers to physical healing, and he's not referring here to the epistles. Peter Davids writes, This at once indicates that a person is very ill, perhaps too ill to go to the elders, and so he sends friends and relatives to let the elders know to come and pray. And so this is a sick person who has come to a point where they're going to ask for oil. Now, I don't think it should just be done on a whim. Oh, I have a cold. I'm going to call the elders of the church to come over and pray for me. I have a sore throat. I'm going to call for the elders of the church. But there is a time, and I think it has to be led by the Holy Spirit for the individual, where you say, you know what? I'm going to ask the leadership of the church to come and pray and call to the Lord. And it doesn't mean that you haven't already been praying over the situation, because I'm sure you have, right? We start out by praying, seeking the Lord. And now we ask the church to join us. Praying over the individual would perhaps indicate, and we can't be dogmatic on this, that the person is in a sickbed and the elders are over that person, anointing that person with oil in the name of the Lord. If you want the cross-reference for the disciples doing this, it's Mark 6, 12 and 13, where it says, They went out and preached that men should repent. Mark 6, 12 and 13. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And so that's something that the apostles did and really the only other place that we have to cross-reference. So what do we make of the oil? Let's talk about the oil for a moment. Some people have argued that in the first century, oil was medicinal, and it certainly was. It was recommended for toothaches and the like. And so oil was an ancient medicine, 
In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says that he came to this one taken among thieves and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him, Luke 10, 34. And so there is a place in the ancient world for oil being medicinal. Ancient sources talk about the medicinal value of oil in many different contexts, but not for everything. But in fact, there's even an ancient source that says it's the best even for paralysis. What James may be saying then is the elders should come to the bedside of the sick person armed with both spiritual and natural resources. That's a possibility. Maybe they're to pray and the oil is more medicinal. The prayer would be then uh, with the oil and with the laying on of hands perhaps. And there's a twofold idea. Evidence that anointing oil was used for any medical problem, though, is not found. And why mention it only, uh, only one, albeit widespread, remedy when many different illnesses would be encountered? Why just bring oil, in other words? Secondly, says this author, why should the elders of the church do the anointing if the purpose is solely medical? If you need your back rubbed with some oil, you probably are not going to call one of the pastors, right? And I hope you don't. As another pastor put it, you may be ready for that, but we're not ready for it. <laughs> so great discernment is obviously needed in these moments. If you're sick, hurting, need a bone reset, don't call us. <laughs> in the sense, if you just need medical attention, right? But if you need prayer... We should be the first ones you call, right? Especially if you are dealing with a grave illness. The second view, first was medicinal. The second is oil was used sacramentally. A sacramental understanding of this practice arose in the early history of the church on the basis of this text. The early Greek church practiced what they called euk elion, a combination of the words uk prayer and elion oil both used in this text, which had the purpose of strengthening the body and the soul of the sick. The Western church continued this practice for many centuries, as well as using oil for anointing on other occasions. Later, the Roman Catholic Church gave the priest the exclusive right to perform the ceremony known as extreme unction. And this ceremony is, if you're in the Roman Catholic Church and you are on your deathbed, and the idea is that you are probably going to be moving on and leaving this world. A priest comes with oil and anoints you in this ceremony to prepare you for the next world. And so extreme unction is the idea. Making sure that you're right with God in these final moments is the idea. But clearly, this developed sacrament has little basis in James' text, says uh, Douglas Moo. He recommended anointing for any illness <clears throat> uh, and associates it with healing rather than preparation for death. So he's not calling for the elders of the church to pray for you to get ready for you to go to heaven. He's saying they should anoint you to pray that you would stay in this world. Everybody with me? So the idea of coming with oil and interpreting James' passage in this way doesn't fit with the context. There are some that believe the oil could be considered to have a sacramental function in that it could act as a vehicle of divine power. Much 
as partaking in the Lord's Supper could convey a strengthening grace from the Lord. So some would say that the oil perhaps is set apart especially for the Lord in the healing of the sick believer. But I would say that we must be careful that we don't place any magic in the oil. We must be careful that we don't take an element like oil and think that somehow if we show up with it that we're going to get God's favor. There's another view, and it's probably the view that most of us would hold, that the oil was used symbolically, illustrating the anointing of the Holy Spirit and his special love and attention to the sick believer. Uh, oil was used in the Old Testament, for example, to set aside priests when they would, or set aside uh, kings and priests when they would enter into the ministry. The key idea is to be set apart for God's special attention and care. So I think a good place to land here is that when you come with oil and a group of elders to the home of a sick person and anoint them, you are especially setting them apart for the operation of the Holy Spirit to move in their life. You're saying, Lord, we're coming in obedience to you with this oil. Luther and Calvin, by the way, just so you know their view, argued that this particular practice was limited to the apostolic era or the apostolic age. So Luther and Calvin, we may respect in many different areas, but they argued that James' passage here has nothing to do with the ongoing ministry of the church, was relegated simply to the ministry of the apostles. So that the apostles were, were able to do this, but no one besides them. But why would James tell the elders of the church? He doesn't address the apostles to go and pray for the sick person. He says the elders should go and pray for them which would indicate that this is in the local church and in the ongoing ministry of the life of the church. Still others argue, and I don't want to weary you with the positions, but I think you do need to know that this was merely an ecclesiastical transaction. It applied to the time because there was no modern advances in medicine, but has been superseded by modern medicine, doctors, medical equipment, medicine, and the like. We no longer need to do these kinds of things, they would say, because God has provided, and certainly medicine and doctors and advances are from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And so since God has given knowledge to men, we don't need to do this anymore. But though this is true, and though I would encourage you, if you're sick, to go to a doctor, even Paul had Luke as his medical physician, I would still say that you should pray and go to the doctor. <laughs> One does not eliminate the other. God could use a medical procedure to heal you, but he also could use the prayer of the elders to heal you. And we just don't know because we are not in the throne room with God and we don't know the full mind of God. And so we have to just simply operate in faith. What I would say is that physical healing, I believe, is the topic, not just spiritual healing. And physical healing is always something that comes under the sovereign uh, banner of God's will. So applying the oil to the sick person is a rich symbolic act, setting the sick person apart to be ministered to in a special way by the Holy Spirit, but also by the church. R. Kent Hughes says, It represents the healing power of God, the Holy Spirit, who watches over believers when applied by the loving hands of the elders. It is a profound vehicle for comfort and encouragement. And so the New Testament does uh, teach us that 
healing was often accomplished without oil. So if, if you're somewhere and somebody says, I'm sick, I need prayer, and you start reaching in your pockets and you don't happen to carry olive oil around with you, be of good cheer. You could pray for that person without the oil and God still will hear those prayers. Many, many people were healed in the ministry of Jesus and otherwise with, uh, without oil. Notice we are to pray. If you look at verse 14, we're to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now I'm going to park here for a second to explain. When you pray in the name of the Lord, you are not just saying in Jesus' name. You're praying in the authority of the name, what the name represents, all that is imbued or within that regal name of the name of the Lord. Just by saying, Lord, what are you, what are you saying? You are sovereign. You are God. You are Lord. I am not. You master, me servant. So that when you pray in the name of the Lord, you are praying for the will of the Lord to be done. You are calling out to him saying, Lord, we need you. We're obeying you, but, but you are sovereign. So the name of the Lord has fuller layers or implications than just simply tagging a prayer in Jesus' name so that it will work. Or showing up with some oil so that we can do another thing that may work, quote unquote. It's the idea of his authority and his will. All that is in his name. And here's where we get the sticky part. And the prayer, notice it doesn't say the oil. It says, and the prayer of faith, ESV, New King James, or offered in faith, will do what? It will restore or save. The Greek word is sozo. It's the word often used for salvation. It will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, literally if he's been constantly sinning, they will be forgiven him. Now, the word for prayer here is a petition to God. It's UK. And it is, it, it implies a strong, fervent petition. So it is certainly, the word is to cry out to God on behalf of this individual to show up with the oil, with the elders, and to say, Lord, we're coming in faith. We're not being double-minded. We believe in you. And so it's the prayer offered in faith or the prayer of faith. And notice how categorical James seems to be. He says the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Some have found some solace with the idea of spiritual weakness here because if it's not a physical ailment and let's say that the person is on a sickbed because they sense that their sin has brought them to the sickness. Let me explain. We know that the Bible teaches that some sickness is the result of sin. Jesus at the pool of Bethesda heals that man who's been there for many, many years and he says to them, he says to him, now Go and sin no more, lest anything worse befall you. In 1 Corinthians, we know that the church is told that because some were abusing the Lord's Supper and making a mockery of it, some of them were sick and some of them even had died. There is a place in the Bible to relate sickness to sin. But not all sickness is a result of personal sin. You could say all sickness is the result of a fallen world in sin, 
But it's not all because of personal sin. Who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither him nor his parents sinned. This has happened to him that the glory of God might be made manifest in him. And so we need great wisdom here. Now, if we were to show up and pray for somebody and somebody said, I'm, on a si- I'm in a sick bed and I've been running from the Lord and I've been a prodigal and I'm sick to boot and I think this is the disciplinary hand of God, what are we going to do? We're going to say, well, maybe you need to do some business with the Lord. Have you done some business with the Lord before you called us? That person might say, yes, I've repented of known sin, but I still want you to pray for me because I'm still sick. These are the aspects of this particular section of Scripture that we have to keep in mind. There's honesty and discernment needed. And the prayer of faith will restore or save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. What are we to make of this prayer of faith? What is it? Is it a blanket promise that any prayer, if I could just muster up enough faith After I've anointed someone, and here's typically what we do. We take oil, we put a cross on somebody's forehead, anoint them in the name of the Lord, draw a cross, if you will, on their forehead, and we pray. Is this saying that if we simply have enough faith as a group of elders, this person is going to be raised up out of their sickbed? I hope not. (laughs) Let me tell you why. There's been times... When I've been in a room and felt like I had more faith than maybe I've ever had. And that person wasn't healed. We do need to keep in mind that James puts no timeline on what will happen. He doesn't say the the person will be raised up immediately. Although in New Testament healings, that seems to be what happens. You pray for them and immediately like the beggar at the, the beautiful gate, you know, he's jumping up and leaping up and down. And so it would seem that it would be immediate, but James doesn't say It's immediate. Could it come in stages? Perhaps the text is silent. What is the prayer of faith? Is it simply just having enough faith? Is it simply a hard enough petition? If I just cry out to the Lord with fervency, then he'll hear. If I yell loud enough, if I jump up and down, I don't know. I don't think so, though. Then what is the prayer of faith? Well, you'll have to come back next Sunday to (laughs) find out. Because I've been told you guys don't want me to preach longer than 45 minutes. Is that true? It's not, that's not true? It's just on certain Sundays, right? <laughs> Let me just tell you where I'm going to set the table. Because I don't want to leave you just with that. I do believe that there's a good case to be made. That in a situation like this, a special endowment of faith will be given from God to the elders. Maybe uh, an extra measure of faith, maybe a gift of faith, 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll look at next time we're together. Maybe a special endowment of faith in the moment to to be so in line with heaven's will that we just kind of know that God is going to heal this person. Or God just sovereignly wills the healing and so he imparts the faith and the gift of healing to the elders in the moment. But I will say this, We still cannot remove the sovereignty of God. You all know God does not heal everybody. Paul prayed three times for that thorn in his flesh to be removed. And what did the Lord say? I'm not taking it away. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. 
So there's some qualifiers here we need to look at. The Lord is ultimately sovereign over healing, and each one of us, unless we die of natural causes, are going to die of our last disease. It is a mistake with often tragic consequences. Please hear what I'm about to say. For someone to take these verses in James, see it as a blanket statement that every time you do this, someone's going to be healed. And if that person isn't healed, then what do we have to do? Well, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your prayer. You didn't have enough faith. He didn't have enough faith. She didn't have enough faith. And then we start getting into the blame game. Look, we, we know that the Bible in the New Testament honors faith. Your faith has made you well. Jesus said that on numerous occasions. So I don't want to downplay the importance of faith, but I also want to be careful that many people who advocate that God always wants to heal and he's going to do it in every instance are up at pulpits wearing eyeglasses and toupees. And I have to say, some of them have even hidden that their wife was in the hospital dealing with cancer while they're up in the pulpit praying that, uh, preaching that God always heals in every circumstance if you just simply have enough faith. I think you all know by the whole of the Bible's teaching and by experience that that's simply patently false. And it creates more problems than it solves. Amen? Amen. So as we move through a text, and I said at the beginning, you may have more questions now than answers. I think it is legitimate as students of Scripture, and I know, you know, personally, many of you who walk into this place, and this is what you expect, right? You want the Word of God to be taught, and you want honesty when it's, it's not as clear or easy in navigating a passage. And this is what we have to do as we tackle our Bibles. And so I, I have kind of set the table for you. I'm going to get a little bit more in depth in the endowment of faith in the moment. And we'll look at some things to connect that as we uh, move into next Sunday. But I will say this. Notice that the prayer of faith is the call in verse 15. And the Lord is faithful to hear prayer, respond to prayer, and to forgive us. He's so good. I mean, if he didn't care about you, he would say, don't even bother. But he says, call to me. Well, Father, with that thought in mind, each time we bow our hearts as a congregation, we are standing upon promises that you've made to us that when we pray, heaven is enlisted. When we pray, evil is resisted. Mountains are moved. Your will is approved when we pray. And Lord, forgive us, because I think I could confess this on behalf of many, that we are often prayerless, or our prayers maybe are not as deep and profound or even as lengthy as they should be, or maybe some of us just need to learn to pray. And Lord, we need to be a church of prayer because you've called us to pray and you respond to prayer. This passage makes that clear. And so thank you that you do. Thank you that your ear is open to the cries of your people. Thank you that you cared about us so much that you entered time and space. You came to rescue us. The Lord Jesus Christ even prayed. He showed us dependence on the Father, the power of the Spirit in a life. He was everything that man was intended to be. And as we look at his model of touching people 
of reaching out in love and prayerful dependence on heaven's power. Well, Lord, we can do no better than that. So I just want to ask, Lord, as each of us allow your word to just go down a little bit deeper in our souls that we would respond with prayer. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the first prayer needs to be, Lord, save me, save my soul. Forgive me of my sin. I don't want to do life without you. Thank you for that rescue mission. Pray it if it's you. Thank you that you died on that cross for me. Thank you that you rose to defeat the grave, which is an enemy and creates fear. Thank you that you're alive and because you live, I will live also. I turn, I repent of my sin and I put my trust in you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to follow you. If you've been backslidden and maybe you're going through some stuff and you know it's a consequence of sin, then this would be a good time to call upon the Lord and ask help from heaven. He will hear your sincere cry and and meet you where you are. He'll restore you, but he'll ask you to be like the prodigal and run home to your father. And Lord, for this wonderful congregation that I know prays for one another regularly, prays for its elders and pastors, I thank you so much for them. I am humbled, I am honored when they say, Pastor, I'm praying for you. It means more than I think they even know. And I thank you for the love of this body, the community of saints. May you grow us in our dependence on you and our love for one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.